Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. Britain mistaken for mafia godfather who did and arrested, but he was just an F1 fan out for lunch. A British man was hooded, handcuffed and bundled away by armed police while eating lunch after being mistaken for a mafia crime boss in the Netherlands. The 54-year-old man, identified by his lawyer only as Mark L., was having a meal with his son at a restaurant in The Hague when he was arrested. The British Formula One fan, from Liverpool, was staying in the Netherlands after watching the Dutch Grand Prix. His lawyer said it would have been a genius of an Italian to have such a strong Liverpool accent. He was taken to a maximum security jail following his arrest in The Hague last Wednesday. The arrest came after Italy asked Dutch authorities to execute an international arrest warrant for Sicilian crime boss Matteo Messina Di Nero, who has been in hiding since 1993. Di Nero, nicknamed Diabolic, is wanted for 50 murders and is the capo di tutti capi, the boss of all bosses, of the Sicilian mafia. He is one of Europe's most wanted fugitives. The arrested man was eventually sprung by his Dutch lawyer, Leon van Cleef, from a maximum security jail in Vught. He remained in prison until last Saturday, while his identity was checked by Italian authorities. Mr. van Cleef said, sometimes in the practice of law things that might go quick take ages. The press release has helped but it took three days. I went to the press in the hope of speeding things up because normally it's a matter of time. You can imagine. He had anger and disbelief and laughter. Because it is ludicrous. He is a normal Formula One fan. I was always convinced he was not it. It would have been a genius of an Italian to have such a strong Liverpool accent. Mr. Van Cleef said the British man did not wish to be identified and would not comment further on the case. A spokeswoman for the public prosecutor's office said the arrested man stated he was an English citizen and not the person claimed by Italy. She said, the outcome of the investigation, which was conducted via an accelerated procedure, turned out to be negative. The public prosecutor then issued an immediate release order. Dutch prosecutors said in a statement that the man arrested earlier this week in a Hague restaurant, is not the man sought by Italian authorities. An official told the numbers public broadcaster, if they say arrest this person, we arrest that person. That's the mutual agreement we have with them. Have lockdowns and living off government handouts for 18 months made Britons work shy? Being paid to stay home and do nothing for months on end during the pandemic seems to have gone down so well with Brits that they are showing a marked reluctance to go back to work, particularly in jobs that are unpleasant or hard. Britons who are old enough to remember shudder at the thought of a return to the dark days of the 1970s, when workers from countless professions, from refuse collectors to ambulance drivers, went on strike. Employers just couldn't catch a break, and neither could the government. Apparently the British, never very keen on hard work, have decided on permanent inactivity Bernard Dornayou, advisor to then Prime Minister James Callaghan, complained in his diary at the height of the economic woes. OK, so perhaps it's a little soon to compare Britain's post-Brexit, 
post-pandemic labour market to the winter of discontent, but there's some concerning signs that Britons have grown used to living on inflated benefits and government-funded sabbaticals. At the latest count, there were a record 1,034,000 job vacancies according to the Office for National Statistics quarterly report, while there were a total of 1.66 million active job adverts in the UK. From anecdotal reports that pubs just can't get the bar staff, to national news stories about a dearth of lorry drivers, there's no shortage of evidence that lots of people just aren't bothering to find a job. With regards to truckers, the shortfall is estimated to be around 100,000 drivers, according to the Road Haulage Association, RHA, and it doesn't pay badly either. Some reports suggest drivers are being offered £50,000 salaries and £5,000 signing on fees in an attempt to entice those looking for good money. Maybe it's the case that some jobs just aren't that popular, particularly for those who have come to enjoy their lives of leisure, bankrolled by the taxpayer, bar work, after all, can be fairly exhausting, while lorry drivers are often expected to be away from home for days if not weeks, on end. After last year's push to get furloughed Britons to pick fruit amid concerns there would be fewer seasonal pickers flown in from Eastern Europe, it was no surprise that farms were short-staffed again this summer. According to the National Union of Farmers, only 11% of seasonal workers in the 2020 season were UK residents, and with added Brexit red tape. EU workers found it difficult to get visas. The Confederation of British Industry, CBI, has warned that staff shortages may be with us for years as the nation's labour market readjusts to the post-pandemic, post-Brexit norms. Other industry leaders are more worried about the short term. Gary Grant, boss of toy chain The Entertainer, added that staff shortages, especially in warehouses, could cause chaos in the run-up to the busy festive period. While it is true that the labour market has been hit with a double whammy the pandemic and Brexit there may be other factors at work. In recent weeks, sections of the British public, as well as celebrities such as Marcus Rashford and charities like the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, have pilloried the government after it announced an end to a temporary scheme that topped up welfare payments by £20 a week. Claimants are scheduled to receive their fine. Homeowner is unable to get in his house due to eight-foot-high rubbish pile. A fed-up homeowner claims an eight-feet-high pile of stinking rubbish next to his front door is so dangerous it is preventing him from entering his own home. Charity worker Paul Stevenson, 63 says he has had to clear a safe passage to his £160,000 two-bedroom terraced house in Harbone, Birmingham, because of the pile of beds, bricks, plaster and furniture stacking up next door. He said the debris has come from major refurbishment work taking place at an empty, neighbouring property and has been piling up for over a month. Paul claimed workmen have been flinging items onto the ground floor below while gutting the interior of the house next door to his. As well as gathering at the side of his home, the rubbish is scattered on the pavement along his street. Paul said, Thursday was the final straw. It just cascaded down.
I actually had to move items to get into my own house. I had to move a heavy door, bed and other stuff. Thankfully, I'm able-bodied. If I wasn't, I'd be in big trouble. It stinks as well and there's the constant problem of walking it through the house. Paul, who has lived in the house all his life, has complained to Birmingham City Council over fly-tipping and potential vermin problems. A spokesman for the city council confirmed the incident is currently under investigation. Paul has also contacted the fire service over concerns the pile could become a public hazard, but was told nothing could be done as the pile is on private property. He added, that's one of my big fears. Late at night, you get people sitting on the wall and smoking cigarettes. I worry the whole lot could go up. It's a public hazard. It's a godsend the rain has dampened it down. There's no skip. The workmen come and go at odd hours. I find it totally disrespectful and the problem is I can't find anyone who can do something about it. The stuff on the pavement is a safety issue. The fire service say they can't do anything because it's a private property. It's nonsensical. The irony is I've spent years taking part in voluntary litter picks and I've got this on my doorstep. A Birmingham City Council spokesperson today told the Mail Online, this matter is currently under investigation in an attempt to resolve the issues as soon as possible. India should vaccinate its own people first rather than let the US co-opt it into its anti-China jab diplomacy. Washington is once again pressuring PM Narendra Modi to export vaccines across Asia in a bid to counterbalance Beijing's exports, but with only 13% of India's 1.3 billion people double-jabbed, New Delhi's focus should be internal. Today it has been widely reported that the United States are urging India to restart its export of Covid vaccines. The Southeast Asian nation is known for its competitive pharmaceutical industry and was, until China displaced it this year, the world's largest producer and exporter of vaccines. In partnership with AstraZeneca, New Delhi created the Covishield vaccine which Modi aspired to use under a vaccine diplomacy stint of his own at the beginning of this year. That was until the country's Covid tsunami struck and under immense political pressure to vaccinate at home, forced him to announce a ban on exports, given the sheer size of its population, ending India's participation in the international Covid race. That ban has remained in place ever since. Now, Biden is personally pushing New Delhi to resume this push. Why? Because in wake of the race to scramble for booster shots, the US now wants to stockpile doses for themselves, amassing 100 million already, and want to use India, as it was intended at the beginning of this year, to be an effective vaccine lackey against China to dilute its own global vaccination push. While Modi was tempted previously by this initiative, he should not sacrifice the interests of Indian people on behalf of America's crusades with the gruesome scenes of April and May still fresh in people's memories. At the beginning of this year, the United States itself maintained an America-first policy of withholding vaccines for itself and upholding a Trump-era ban on exports. Having already faced over half a million deaths at that point in time, 
Washington was on the back foot against Beijing's global vaccine push. To put this into perspective, China has since today exported 797 million doses of COVID vaccines and donated 68 million more for free. The US initially had no answer to this, and sought to use India as the counterweight to Beijing. During the first Quad Leaders Summit, which was held digitally in March, the four leaders together made a pledge to donate 2 billion vaccines to Southeast Asia within the next year, financed via the US and Japan, and produced by India. The proposal soon went up in smoke after the Delta variant ravaged India. Although since that time US policy has pivoted towards donating vaccines itself, as well as making ever more ambitious commitments along with G7 countries to donate billions more vaccines. The unpredictability of the COVID-19 crisis has in fact hit another snag, the revelation that vaccines do not make the pandemic completely go away entirely in the way people assumed has led to a growing scramble for booster shots ahead of winter. Logically, it's making quick work out of the goodwill of Western nations to donate billions selflessly. The West has always put themselves before poorer countries, and it comes amid 11 Jinping's pledge China will donate another 100 million vaccines by the end of the year. The US president faces more trouble than just boosters. The man admits killing stranger by stabbing him more than 30 times with bayonet in London Cemetery. A man has admitted killing a stranger in a random cemetery attack by stabbing him more than 30 times with a bayonet. Cornelius Tully, 50, attacked Michael Morris Owens, 62, as he sat on a bench outside the chapel in the grounds of St Mary's in Kensal Green, northwest London. CCTV captured on the 22nd of November last year shows the shadow of a figure holding a long thin knife before the attack was carried out. Metropolitan Police had said that officers were called to the scene at 2 p.m. that day. Mr. Morris Owens had died in the cemetery and was pronounced dead at the scene by London's Air Ambulance and London Ambulance Service paramedics. Two days after the attack, Tully, from Harlesden in Brent, appeared at Harlesden Magistrates Court. On Tuesday, he appeared at the Old Bailey via video link from Three Bridges Secure Hospital. He denied murder but pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the basis of diminished responsibility. The plea was accepted by prosecutors because of his unspecified psychiatric condition. Judge Anthony Leonard adjourned sentencing to 29 October. At an earlier hearing, Prosecutor William Imlin Jones said Tully approached Mr. Morris Owens and repeatedly stabbed him with the bayonet to the point he stopped moving. The attack began after Tully started a conversation with his victim before offering a hand, which was not shaken. Mr. Imlin Jones said there followed the somewhat macabre sight of a shadow against the wall of the chapel which showed a long blade before Tully came into view. He is seen with a sheath in his left hand and the bayonet in his right hand before stabbing Morris Owen's stomach. The victim shoved the defendant away but was chased before a great deal more stab wounds were inflicted, it was said. Tully was remanded in custody until sentencing. Prosecution witness in Netanyahu's corruption trial killed as his plane crashes in Greece.
Former senior Israeli official Haim Jiren has been killed in a plane crash near the Greek island of Samos. Jiren was among the witnesses in the ongoing corruption trial of ex-PM Benjamin Netanyahu. The light plane, carrying Jiren and his wife Esther, crashed into the sea close to the Samos airport late on Monday. The former official, who used to serve as the Deputy Director General for Engineering and Licensing at the Israeli Communications Ministry, and his wife, both 69, were the only occupants on the aircraft. The bodies of the victims were recovered several hours after the crash by the Greek Coast Guard, which searched the area with boats and divers. We recovered two bodies from the spot a Coast Guard official told Reuters. The aircraft crashed about a mile south from the airport another official added. Israel's foreign ministry has already confirmed the identities of the victims, adding that it has been working to get their bodies back to Israel for burial. The Greek Air Accident Investigation and Aviation Board launched a probe into the cause of the crash on Tuesday. The board said communication with Jiren's plane was lost shortly before it was expected to land at the Samos airport. Multiple explosions were reportedly heard in the area at the time of the crash. A local fisherman said there was a big explosion, followed by a smaller one chief of the board, Ionis Condylis, told AFP. While Greek media reported that the aircraft appeared to have suffered a technical malfunction, there's no official word on what caused the incident yet. Jiren was among over 300 prosecution witnesses listed for the corruption trial of Israel's former PM Benjamin Netanyahu. He is simultaneously facing three corruption cases known as Case 1000. Case 2000 and Case 4000. The latter case is the most serious one for Netanyahu, who is alleged to have abused his powers between 2014 and 2017, when he served both as the country's PM and communications minister. Indicted on charges of fraud, bribery, and breach of public trust over allegations of accepting expensive gifts from wealthy businessmen and conspiring with media bosses for favorable coverage, Netanyahu has consistently denied all the accusations against him. Preeti Patel accused of running scared after pulling out of police leaders' conference. Preeti Patel has been accused of running scared after cancelling an appearance at a major police conference amid the ongoing row over a pay freeze for officers. The Home Secretary had been booked to deliver the keynote address at the annual Police Superintendents Association event in Stratford-upon-Avon, just weeks after rank-and-file officers passed a motion of no confidence in her. However, Less than an hour after receiving a copy of the president's speech last Friday, which was highly critical of the government, Ms Patel's office said she would not be able to attend due to urgent parliamentary business. Organizers offered to change the schedule in order to allow the Home Secretary to attend at any stage during the three-day conference, but were told it would not be possible. Ms. Patel's office also declined the offer to take part in a live question-and-answer session with attendees via Zoom. Instead, she delivered a pre-recorded speech in which she told senior police leaders that the financial impact of the pandemic meant the Chancellor could not justify an across-the-board pay increase for public sector workers. 
The speech was greeted with silence from the more than 100 delegates at the conference, who warmly applauded an appearance by Nick Thomas Simmons, the Shadow Home Secretary. He described the decision to impose a pay freeze as shameful and poured scorn on the idea that Ms Patel was needed in Westminster to take part in a crucial Commons vote. He said, I can see no reason why we could not see the Home Secretary in person. Given that I am here, our votes would have cancelled each other out. Chief Superintendent Paul Griffiths, President of the PSA, said Ms Patel's decision to send a video address was an insult that had done more damage. He said that the Home Secretary had also cancelled a meeting with him scheduled for Thursday. No show has caused a lot of anger. One senior figure at the conference said, This was the first opportunity since the announcement of the pay freeze that we would have had to put the Home Secretary on the spot. It feels like she is running scared and it has caused a lot of anger. Chief Superintendent Paul Griffiths, the president of the Police Superintendents Association, said he was deeply disappointed that the Home Secretary had decided not to attend in person. He said that the pay freeze had damaged trust in the government and announced that his members would be following the police federation in withdrawing from the independent remuneration body that is supposed to set salaries. He told delegates, we have repeatedly heard from the government that they want a better deal for police and a worse deal for criminals. How is a better deal a pay freeze for the people sent out on the front line during a deadly pandemic? No one enters policing to get rich. It is a vocation and a career that provides challenge and demands sacrifice like no other something clearly demonstrated amidst the pandemic. However, with very few employment rights, it is essential that police officers have fair and transparent processes in place to determine their pay, and that they have a clear voice within this. It is for this reason that I can announce today that the Police Superintendents Association is withdrawing from the Police Remuneration Review Body process. Dame Cressida Dick, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, who also delivered a speech at the conference, lent Shadow Hunters Starland's lead role in unexpected reboot of Arnold Schwarzenegger hit. Shadow Hunters star Dominic Sherwood has been cast in a reboot of Arnold Schwarzenegger's 1996 action hit Eraser. According to Deadline, the film, which has been titled Eraser, Reborn, was shot under the radar this summer and is currently in post-production. Eraser follows U.S. Marshal Mason Pollard, who specializes in faking deaths for people who need to leave no evidence that they ever existed. Alongside Sherwood, it also stars his fellow Shadow Hunters star Jackie Lay, Ozark's McKinley Belcher III, and Animal Kingdom's Eddie Ramos. Deep Blue Sea's John Pogue is directing, while The Last of the Mohicans and First Night's Hunt Lowry will produce with Deep Blue Sea 3's Patty Reed. The 1996 film starred Schwarzenegger as eraser John Kruger who becomes suspicious of his co-workers when dealing with a case involving high-tech weapons, putting him into conflict with his former allies. It was directed by Chuck Russell, and also starred Vanessa Williams and James Kahn. Eraser was a big hit at the box office, 
grossing over $240 million against an estimated budget of $100 million. And while the critics weren't very positive, it did receive an Oscar nomination for Best Sound Effects Editing. Deadline adds that the reboot has been made for Warner Bros. Home Entertainment, but not for HBO Max, for a probable release in spring 2022. Meanwhile, in other Arnie news, earlier this year Schwarzenegger's son-in-law Chris Pratt revealed why he won't be caught doing an impression of the action star. After an interview did his best Schwarzenegger impersonation for Pratt, the actor said, you won't catch me saying that on camera because I'm going to see him for dinner on Sunday and if he says, hey, I saw the interview where you did an impression of me that might not work so well. Isis bride Shamima Begum's drastic new look as she begs to be allowed to return to UK. In her first live TV interview, Shamima Begum looked wildly different as she begged to return to the UK. Appealing for compassion on Thursday's Good Morning Britain, Shamima sported a Nike baseball cap and lipstick. As she chatted from a Syrian refugee camp to Susanna Reid and Richard Madeley in the studio the now 22-year-old stroked her long hair repeatedly after ditching wearing a hijab in public. Shamima wore bright orange nail varnish, peach lipstick and groomed eyebrows as she appealed to be let back to the UK. Explaining her changed appearance, Shamima said said she has not been wearing a hijab for a year now. I took it off for myself. I felt very constricted in the hijab. I did not feel myself she told the hosts. Richard asked if her new was simply a PR exercise as she hopes to make a return to the UK. It's for myself. It's for no one but myself Shamima replied. Shamima left the UK at the age of 15 to join ISIS in Syria. In February 2019 the British government revoked her citizenship and ruled that she would never be allowed to return. As she begged to be let back to the UK on the ITV morning show, Madeley told her there had been an unsympathetic response from viewers who refused to forgive her and called her remorse an act. Shamima responded by saying she regrets every decision she has made since she stepped into Syria. She said she had been groomed as a teen and did not know she was joining a death cult. The only crime I have committed was being dumb enough to join ISIS, she told the hosts. Asked whether she had been groomed by ISIS, Shamima said, I think yes, I was groomed and taken advantage of and manipulated into coming. I thought it was an Islamic community that I was joining. I was being fed a lot of information on the internet by people in ISIS telling me I need to come because I can't be a good Muslim in the UK. She told the hosts, I knew there was war but not in places women and children were living. I thought it would be safe for me. I did not know ISIS wanted to take over the world. Shamima said she is sorry for anyone who has been affected by ISIS. I in no way agree or try to justify what they did. It's not justifiable to kill innocent people in the name of religion. I just want to apologize. I am sorry she said from North Syria. Shamima told viewers if she was allowed back to the UK she could share her inside knowledge on terrorism, including revealing names, to the British government, who she said clearly don't know what they are doing.
she added that she would be willing to face the justice system herself if she were allowed to return home. When asked what she will do now, Shamima said there was nothing she could do but wait in the camp and wallow in my own self-pity. Two-faced Facebook's hypocrisy on freedom of speech reveals it is now a clear and present danger to democracy. The exposure of a secret program that grants elite users special publishing privileges exposes how the tech giant pays lip service to its claim that its rules apply to everyone. It's all about the ruthless pursuit of profit. So, the truth is finally out, despite all the claims promises and knee-bending by Facebook's PR department, not all the platform's 3 billion users are equal. Some, it seems, are privileged, sometimes by accident, but mainly by design. This is the inescapable truth that the Wall Street Journal has revealed through examining the company's cross-check or ex-check program. Its analysis shows that Facebook has built a system that has exempted high-profile users from some or all of its rules. Initially intended as a quality control measure for actions taken against high-profile accounts, including celebrities, politicians and journalists, today this system shields millions of VIP users from the company's normal enforcement processes. Talk about white privilege. A whitelist for some users renders them immune from enforcement actions. Others are allowed to post rule-violating material pending Facebook employee reviews that often never come, says the WSJ report. This whitelist includes up to 5.8 million entitled users, representing an invisible elite within the social network. And who is on it or gets to have such an honor? An internal guide to ex-check eligibility reveals the truth, those who are newsworthy, influential or popular, or PR risky. In short, those who help drive, or could threaten, traffic across Facebook's platforms. The example of the Brazilian soccer star Neymar is apposite. With more than 150 million followers on Instagram, owned by Facebook, he is one of the most popular in the world. He thus overwhelmingly qualifies to be part of Facebook's privileged accounts. After a woman accused Neymar of rape in 2019, he posted Facebook and Instagram videos defending himself and showing viewers his WhatsApp correspondence with his accuser, which included her name and nude photos of her. He accused the woman of extorting him. It took Facebook moderators more than a day to remove the video. In other cases, it would have prompted immediate action. 56 million Facebook and Instagram users saw what Facebook described in a separate document as revenge porn, exposing the women to abuse from other users. Neymar denied the rape allegation, and no charges were filed against him. But the woman was charged by Brazilian authorities with slander, extortion and fraud. The first two charges were dropped, and she was acquitted of the third. A spokesperson for Neymar said the athlete had adhered to Facebook's rules and declined to comment further. Of course, he had. But Facebook was sticking to its elite, privileged regulations to ensure that an account with 150 million users was not interrupted, indeed, that it would generate a considerable amount of traffic across its platform. 
The principle here is profit, not upholding any public standard of justice or freedom of expression. Over the past five years, universal credit claimants to descend on Westminster with message for Boris Johnson. Protesters calling on the government not to scrap the universal credit hike descend on Westminster today amid fresh warnings over the impact on youngsters. Research by the YMCA said axing the pound 20a week rise would clobber young people leaving supported housing. In a report, of little benefit, the necessity of the £20 universal credit uplift for young people seeking independence, published today says that in June, 918,000 young people aged 16 to 24 were claiming the welfare payment. The benefit was increased by pound 20 a week at the start of the coronavirus pandemic in April last year to help hard-up households cope with the crisis. But the temporary rise will be scrapped next month. The 19-page YMCA study says, for young people on universal credit and not in work, affording essential items after rent and bills can already lead to shortfalls. This could take the shape of falling behind in rent or bill payments, or reliance on food banks or skipping meals. It adds, once the £20 uplift is removed, however, Many more young people on universal credit can expect to be pushed closer to the breadline, or even further into arrears with their payments. These will be young people who do not have the typical family support network to be able to lend them money to tide them over. YMCA Chief Executive Denise Hatton said, by removing the uplift, the choices a young person has when moving out of supported housing narrow dramatically impacting the type of accommodation they move into, access to employment opportunities, and how much money if any they have left after covering necessities. While YMCA appreciates that difficult decisions must be made in order to support the economic recovery of the country after a truly traumatic time, the removal of this lifeline is not a feasible or a fair decision. Therefore, YMCA is asking the government to maintain the £20 weekly uplift to ensure young people striving for independent living are able to find the best possible fit while pursuing a career or learning opportunities without an increased risk of falling into debt. The choice should never be one or the other. UC claimants who are members of the Unite Union will take their fight to Parliament during Prime Minister's questions. Holding banners saying keep our families fed and food is not a luxury, they will demand an extension to the pound 1,040 a year hike. Unite Assistant General Secretary Steve Turner said, the Chancellor is making a deliberate and cruel decision to punish the country's working poor, pushing 6 million people over a third of which are already in work into poverty and debt overnight. Many of them have worked right through the pandemic in social care, in the NHS and as refuse collectors and they deserve so much better from this government than this assault on their already poverty-level incomes. Boris Johnson continues to resist calls to maintain the rise. His spokesman said this week, We know people have to adjust to a change in their payment and we are supporting people to increase their incomes in a number of ways. We are helping people learn new skills so they can progress to better jobs.
Indeed, our plan for jobs provides a number of schemes which will help people learn these new skills and progress in their careers, and we are scientists launch plan to resurrect extinct woolly mammoths in the Arctic. Woolly mammoths could roam the land once more as scientists embark on an ambitious project to bring them back to the Arctic tundra. Researchers have spent years studying the possibility of recreating the giant beasts which went extinct 10,000 years ago amid a warming climate and widespread human hunting. Now, bioscience and genetics company Colossal believes it can take on the task with an £11 million boost in funding and the first calves expected in six years. Scientists hope to create a hybrid animal by growing embryos in the laboratory putting skin cells from Asian elephants into stem cells with mammoth DNA. Using advanced gene editing technology, genomes would be taken from animals recovered from permafrost and a surrogate mother would carry the embryos. Famous Harvard geneticist Professor George Church launched the new venture alongside startup founder Ben Lamb, most famous for planning to launch satellites to look for UFOs in the Earth's atmosphere. Professor Church said, Our goal is to make a cold-resistant elephant, but it is going to look and behave like a mammoth. Not because we are trying to trick anybody, but because we want something that is functionally equivalent to the mammoth, that will enjoy its time at Dash 40C, and do all the things that elephants and mammoths do. Mammoth-specific genes are identified by comparing the genetics of frozen woolly mammoth specimens and Asian elephants. Scientists will then edit the skin cells of Asian elephants so that they can carry the woolly mammoth genes. An egg is created from stem cells in the lab and its nucleus is swapped with that from the skin cell containing mammoth DNA. It is then stimulated so that it starts to divide and grow either in a surrogate elephant mother or even an artificial womb. Technically speaking, this would not produce an actual woolly mammoth but a genetically engineered hybrid. What is the goal? The woolly mammoth revival aims to bring back the extinct species so that healthy herds may one day repopulate vast tracts of tundra and boreal forest in Eurasia and North America. The intent is not to make perfect copies of extinct woolly mammoths, but to focus on the mammoth adaptations needed for Asian elephants to thrive in the cold climate of the Arctic. Over the last 800,000 years, the species was a significant part of the Arctic ecosystem until relatively recently, roaming across the grasslands of North America, Russia and Europe before going extinct. Some scientists argue that the tundra ecosystem that arose in their absence is now affected by and contributing to human-driven climate change. They say without large animals to compact and scrape away thick insulating layers of winter snow, extreme winter cold does not penetrate the soil. However, not all experts support the plan. Dr. Victoria Herridge of the Natural History Museum said the project was implausible. The researcher, who studies elephants, said, There are a lot of questions raised by this project. The key ethical points are the aspects of animal experimentation and husbandry. What is this creature? Is it a new species? How many do you need? Then if they succeed, what will the needs be of an intelligent social creature? And what are our obligations to it?
We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. Welcome back, this is misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned. Obesity is a killer and COVID is brutal to fat people, so why are we doing nothing to tackle this ticking time bomb? A huge 42% of Americans are obese and that figures likely ballooned during lockdown. Yet medical chiefs are silent about this, our media lord the morbidly overweight, and you can get free donuts with your vaccines. Why? The CEO of salad chain Sweetgreen was recently chastised by leftist journalists for a LinkedIn post suggesting that obesity has been a significant factor contributing to poor health in the context of COVID morbidity and mortality. Vice magazine took similar umbrage when the CEO of Whole Foods expressed the same kind of sentiment last year, one he's offered for a decade. Vice's criticism of the self-serving solution offered by these businessmen government taxation of high-calorie foods that would, one might suppose, shift consumer dollars to expensive salads and groceries may be appropriate, but even the online mag-admitted Jonathan Neman of Sweet Green was onto something with his identification of obesity as a contributing factor to poor health, especially in the midst of a global viral pandemic. Commenters called his comments disgusting and fatphobic and Neman was eventually forced to apologize, but the evidence is overwhelming that obesity is associated, more than any other factor besides age, with poor outcomes in COVID-19 patients. Data from around the world has demonstrated and quantified that truth since the first half of 2020, relatively early in the pandemic. Medical leaders in positions of authority and influence, most significantly Anthony Fauci, publicly recognized this fact as soon as it became clear, which leads to an important question. Why have those same medical leaders said virtually nothing about obesity in the last 18 months? Prior to the pandemic, Jerome Adams, former Surgeon General of the United States under Donald Trump, addressed America's obesity problem. In the age of COVID, however, he chatters about masks almost exclusively. In fact, a search of his Twitter account, which Dr. Adams uses regularly, fails to find a single tweet about obesity in any context of COVID. Dr. Fauci is a media fixture these days, lecturing the public about everything from masks and lockdowns to social distancing and vaccine boosters. Early this year, Forbes declared that America's obesity crisis needs its own Dr. Fauci to help fight it. One must wonder why the actual Dr. Fauci isn't doing so. The Biden administration was encouraged from its inception to address obesity as a critical tool in its battle against COVID-19, yet nobody in the White House, despite almost non-stop communication about coronavirus, will discuss the topic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a web page about obesity's relationship with COVID, 
but it provides little information, and its guidance is sparse. A Google search of CDC COVID obesity turns up sparingly little. In fact, the second piece of news is the sweet green apology mentioned above. This failure to address a major preventable factor in COVID mortality is a failure of public health policy and its leaders, and it's a failure that has cost lives. At the beginning of COVID's spread, the obesity rate in the United States stood at 42.4%, up Haiti's top prosecutor seeks charges against PM over president's assassination. A Haitian prosecutor is seeking charges against PM Ariel Henry over an alleged link to the murder of late President Jovenel Moise. He has also asked for a restraining order to prevent the official from fleeing the country. The high-profile accusations were levied by Haiti's chief public prosecutor, Bedford Claude, on Tuesday. In a letter to a judge overseeing the probe into the July assassination of Moise, Claude said the PM spoke to the prime suspect twice on the night of the killing. The suspect in question is a former Justice Ministry official who is now on the run. Henry had previously publicly defended the suspect. There are enough compromising elements to prosecute Henry and ask for his outright indictment, Claude wrote. In a separate letter, Claude also reached out to the nation's customs service demanding an immediate restraining order be issued against the PM to prevent him from potentially fleeing Haiti. Henry should be forbidden from leaving the national territory by a sea or road due to serious presumption relative to the assassination of the president the prosecutor wrote. The PM's office is yet to comment on this new twist in the Moyes assassination saga. The late president was slain at his home on July 7 by a group of heavily armed assassins who stormed his residence. Moyes' wife was seriously injured in the attack. The mercenary group allegedly primarily consisted of Colombians with military backgrounds, and included at least two Haitian Americans. Several mercenaries were slain by Haiti's security forces in the wake of the assassination. While the majority of the group of suspects have been detained, a handful of the alleged assailants remain on the run. We are asking for your support. You can make your donations on our website www.misty101.com on podcast page. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.